Amen. So, so hey, there can be a lot of pressure on Easter Sunday. You know, we have a few extra people here this morning, and, and, um, and you know, you feel like you're kind of like, this is, the, this is it. This is like a sermon. This is the Super Bowl, you know, and, and uh, you feel a little pressure. And last night, uh, you know, we were uh, laying in bed, and, and, and I had some worries going on, worried about uh, some people that I love a lot, worried about some situations out of my control, worried about this, worried about that. And I'm not a big worrier, you know, but then, you know, man, I, I don't feel as prepared as I'd like to be. And, and Sonda always knows just what to say to me. She said, Matt, she said, don't try to be funny or charming or smart. Just be yourself, you know, and uh, really help me, help me out. But um, when I think about Easter, I think about victory. I think about uh, Jesus' victory over, over sin and over death and over hell and over our shame. And in victory, um, when I think about victory, I think about uh, the Olympics. Uh, when I was a kid, you know, we used to gather around the TV and, and, and watch the Olympics. I mean, we enjoyed the Olympics, but it was also literally the only thing on TV. And so we would gather and watch the Olympics. And there's some, been some great, uh, amazing Olympic victories over the years. And uh, in particular, in the 1996 Olympics, they'll stand out um, to me when Michael Johnson took home two gold medals, um, crushed two world records along the way. He became the first man in history to win the gold in the 400 meter and the 200 meter in the same Olympic Games. That was just an incredible moment. And when, when, when Michael Johnson won those goals and set those records, because he was representing us, he was representing the U.S., uh, we won the gold. We went to the water cooler the next day and we said, man, we won this many gold medals. Remember, same Olympics, Carrie uh, Strug. A heroic performance where she was on that incredible team of, of gymnasts and, and uh, she had injured her, her ankle, you know, and, um, and uh, she, she did, the, did the spin or the flip or whatever it was off the vault and she stuck the landing. And I mean, just that moment where you see how much pain she's in, but she sticks that landing, she gets the great scores. Uh, and and that, that, that's a tipping point for the uh, U.S. Uh, ladies gymnast to defeat uh, the Russia's team, you know, for the first time in history. And that's actually what inspired Will Donovan to begin his gymnast uh, career. And so it was a powerful moment for him in his life. But, you know, it was just one of those moments when that happened where you're just like, whoa, you know, you, you stand up in your, in your living room and your bathrobe and your Girl Scout cookies you were eating, you know, fall out all over the floor. You're like, yeah! America, you know, we did it, you know, and, and that was our victory. We did that, even though we contributed nothing to it. We did not contribute anything. We didn't train. We didn't, we did, we didn't wake up in the, you know, early morning, to, to, but, but that was ours. More recently, Michael Phelps, the fish, the phenomenon, right, in, in 2008, winning eight gold medals, and then in two other Olympic games, bringing his total of golds up to 18 gold medals, and, and man, we say, man, we won those gold medals because these Olympic athletes represent us. Their victory is a shared victory. What is true of them becomes true of us because they represent us even if we don't resemble them. The Olympic athletes represent us even if we do not resemble them. Even though we didn't lift a finger, we, we have a share in that victory. We didn't contribute to it. We sat on the couch and we watched, and yet we share in it because they represent us. And what I want you to hear loud and clear this morning is that because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, 
we can share in the greatest victory ever won. Jesus represented you and me on the cross when we did not resemble him. Thank you, sir. Man, he represented us when we did not resemble him. At the cross, Jesus represented me when I did not, rep- when I did not resemble him so that people that don't resemble him would be transformed into people who gradually do come to resemble him. So years before the, the death and resurrection of Jesus, there's another great story. It's one of my son's favorite stories, and he has a lot of favorite stories. I mean, this is a story that has to be so cool it competes with, you know, Avengers Infinity War and Captain Marvel and Black Panther and all this stuff. But there's a story that he loves, and it's a story that's probably one of the first stories you heard in church, and that's the story of David and Goliath. Right? This happens hundreds of years before Jesus uh, goes to the cross. But there's this, uh, this, this shepherd boy. Remember the story, right? There's this shepherd boy named David. Um, and, and the backstory of his showdown to Goliath is that God's people had been walking through this dark period. The period of the judges we've been talking about the past couple of weeks. And the people of God would do this thing where they would, they would kind of walk with God for a while. And then they would take their focus off of him. And they would rebel against God. And they would start doing what was right in their own eyes. And they would wander from God. And and life would get messed up. And then God, because he loved them, he would correct them. He would send retribution to them. And that retribution was painful. And it hurt. And it usually came in the form of of outside uh, armies that would, like the Philistines or the Midianites, that would come and and, 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 and harm them. And eventually, the people would become, uh, come to a place where they were in so much pain, they would cry out to God and say, God, man, we we messed up. We, We dropped the ball. And they would repent. They would return to Him. And so God would then rescue them. And then a few years would pass and the cycle would start all over again. He would rescue them. They would rebel against him. His retribution would come. They would repent. He would rescue. Then they would rebel. And that sounds a lot like the vicious cycle probably of your life, of my life. That was the vicious cycle the people of Israel had been caught in. And then the people say, I know how to get out of this vicious cycle. We need to have a king like all the other nations have. You ever do that where you feel like the way you can get out of being trapped in the same thing everybody else is trapped in is to start being like everybody else. That's sound logic, isn't it? I bet I would stop acting like everybody else if I did the same thing everybody else is doing. That would probably work. It's working well for them. We live in a country where people are are pursuing happiness more than people have ever pursued happiness, and we are the most unhappy people who've ever lived. Something's not working. Something's not adding up. And so the Israelites do what we do so often. They say, maybe if I'm just like everybody else, that's going to help me not be like everybody else. And it's foolish, but we do it. So they say, give us a king. And the problem was they had a king already. God was their king. God had set things up where he would be their king. But they wanted a king that they could stack up against earthly kings. They wanted a king that would suit up in his armor and be shining out there in the chariots. They want to see a king they could see and they could hear and they could touch. And so God gives them a king. And the first king they, they, they get is this guy named Saul. And Saul looks the part. If there was ever a guy that looked kingly, it was Saul. Saul would have been voted the sexiest man alive. He would have been on the cover of People magazine, him and Travis Janis, just side by side, the 50 most beautiful people. And, 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 and he, he looked the part. He was head and shoulders taller than everybody else. Had, he was ripped, attractive guy. And, and, and they say, this has to be him. The problem was Saul's image didn't match his heart. I think that's the problem for a lot of us today. Actually, I know it is, is that the image doesn't always match the heart. 
And if there's a disconnect between what we're presenting out here and what's going on in here, it's going to lead us to trouble. So God ends up, because of Saul's heart problem, God ends up rejecting him from being king. And that's where we pick up in 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel comes after Judges, and it's before 2 Samuel. So if you get to 2 Samuel, you went too far. If you get to 3 Samuel, you're not even in the right book, okay? But uh, 1 Samuel, all right, chapter 16. So, so Samuel's the prophet, and God says to him, chapter 16, verse 1, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. Uh, now, this is the, the, the grandson of, of Ruth that we talked about last week, Ruth and Boaz. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I provided for myself a king among his, among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he's going to kill me. Saul's crazy. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you will do. And you will anoint me, me uh, for me, the one whom I declare to you. So that word anoint is the Hebrew word meshiach, where we get our word Messiah. Messiah means anointed one. It means the king. It means, it means the true leader. And that's when we, when we talk about Jesus being the Messiah, we're saying he's the meshiach. He's the anointed one. It's translated in Greek as Christos or Christ. So Messiah, Christ, isn't Jesus' last name, right? This is his title that designates he's the chosen one. He is the king. He's the true David. That's going to be important later. So Samuel, verse 4, did what the Lord commanded him to do. He went to Bethlehem. The elders of the city come out and they, they're, they're shaking in their boots and they say, have you come in peace? And, and he says, yeah, I've come in peace. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourself. Set yourselves apart. Come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated, set apart Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, man, this is the Lord's anointed. This guy is it. He's got abs. He's tall. He's good looking. He's almost as good looking as Saul. This has got to be the guy. And the Lord says something really, really important. Do not look on the appearance or on the height of his stature because I've rejected him. We're going to see some heart stuff in Eliab later that, that isn't great. He looked great on the inside, but the image didn't match the heart. Don't look at his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him, for the Lord does not see as a man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now, that's a familiar passage. God doesn't see or look like we look. God looks at the heart. That's a, that's a comforting word, and it's also a challenging word. It's a comforting word. If you've got a face like mine, it's a really comforting word. God doesn't look and, 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 and determine my value by, by outward appearance. But it's a challenging word if you have a heart like mine. God sees what's really going on in here. I can hide it from you. You can hide it from one another. You can hide it from me. But God sees what's going on in our heart. He looks at our heart. And, and I, I wonder what our, what our hearts would look like if we spent as much time cultivating our hearts as we spent cultivating our image. I wonder what our image would look like if we spent as much time cultivating our image as we spent cultivating our heart. What if the outside reflected what was going on on the inside and vice versa? You know, God's never going to ask you about your 401k. He's not going to ask you about your resume. wrong with those things? Good things. But what God's after, what God cares about more than anything else, is God's chasing your heart. God sees the heart, and God's word says that his eyes roam to and fro looking for a heart that is completely his so that he can hold up that person 
and strengthen that person? What would your heart look like if you spent as much time cultivating your heart as your image and vice versa? We need people in our lives like, like Becky Acuna. Becky Acuna will just walk up to me and say, man, your hair looks crazy. What's going on with you? And I'll say, oh, man, does it look crazy? All right, let me fix that. And we need people in our lives who come up to us and say, what's, what's going on in your heart right now? Oh, well, oh that might offend somebody. That might, well, it might. Also might be the thing that saves a person's life. What's going on in your heart? Samuel anoints David, pours the oil over his head, and he goes about his business. And where does David go? David goes back to the pasture. We would think that David would enroll in like Hogwarts or something like that. He would enroll in some kind of royal academy and, you know, for future kings. But what he does is he goes back to the sheep. The next time we find David, they have to call him from the sheep again. Gene Edwards writes, Quite a day for that young man, wouldn't you say? Then do you find it strange that this remarkable event led the young man not to the throne, but to a decade of hellish agony and suffering? On that day, David was enrolled into the school of brokenness. The school of brokenness. I don't know if any of us want to enroll in that school, but there's times in our life where we go to that school. And in the school of brokenness, we learn about our inability. And hopefully in the school of brokenness, we learn about God's ability David goes back to the sheep, goes back to the pasture, and Charles Swindoll says that he spent those years in the pasture in solitude, in obscurity, monotony, and reality. He spent that time in solitude. It was just him, God, and some sheep. He spent that time in obscurity. Nobody knew who David was or cared about what David was doing. Nobody was following him on Instagram. Nobody cared uh, what, what he was doing. He was obscure, unknown. He was doing the monotonous stuff. He was taking the sheep from one pasture to the next. Think about the monotony of your day. Changing diapers, you know, uh, teaching kids, cashing checks, whatever it is you do, the bank teller line, the, the educator, the nurse. He's doing this monotonous job day in and day out. And in the midst of that, God also forms him through reality. Every now and then a big old lion would jump out or a bear would jump out. And through his skill that he developed and through the presence of God with him, David would overcome those enemies, those predators that would come. And he learned the reality. His life became grounded on the reality that God was with him, that God was with him. So how's God cultivating your heart? Stay with me. He cultivated David's heart through solitude, through obscurity, through monotony, through reality. How's he cultivating your heart? How's God using pain to cultivate your heart? God's looking for a heart that's like his. He's, he's much more concerned with our heart than he is our image. And so we, we turn the page to 1 Samuel 17, and we get this familiar story. David's still um, a shepherd. He's out in the, sh- in, the, in the field with the sheep, but he gets promoted to errand boy. His dad, Jesse, says, hey, your brothers are fighting uh, against the Philistines. Go to the army camp. Here's some food. Take them these Lunchables. Take them these snacks uh, and, and find out what's going on. Bring me a little tidbit back from the front lines. I want to know how my boys are doing. I want to know what's going on. Remember the story about, about, uh, about Goliath? What Goliath was doing was he would come down every day. They were gathered in the Valley of Elah. And the Philistines, when we talk about a Philistine now, we might talk about somebody that's like stupid or backward or don't know much. But the Philistines were actually really advanced. 
They were some of the first to, 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 to forge metal. They had superior uh, armor. They had superior weapons. They had superior tech. They were, the Israelites were outgunned, okay? And then they see Goliath walk up. He's this giant that's nine feet tall and has this big old spear and sword, and the dude walks in front of him carrying his, his full body uh, 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 shield. And Goliath has this really interesting option. He says, rather than all of us fighting and killing each other and a lot of blood being shed and then you eventually lose anyway, how about you just send a champion? We'll settle this thing by, by single combat. Take your best warrior, send him out to me. I'll fight him. He'll fight me. And if I win, you guys will be our slaves. If you win, we'll be your slaves. Um, the Philistines don't end up living by that agreement, but that's, that's a different thing. We love the Goliath and David story because it's got all the elements of a good story. We've got a tyrant, right? We've got a, a villain. Most great stories have a villain. You know what? Your story has a villain. Your story has a villain. Somebody's wanted to destroy you since you came into this world, since even before you entered this world. All the great stories have a villain. All the great stories have an unlikely hero. That unlikely hero is this young boy, this young man, David. All the best stories have conflict. The conflict in this story is Goliath challenges the Israelites. David gets to the, the front lines, and, and he's amazed that there's not one Israelite that'll, that'll take on Goliath. He's amazed that this guy is able to walk uh, to, the, to the front lines day after day, 40 days, 40 nights, same amount of time Jesus spent squaring off against Satan in the wilderness, by the way. But Goliath comes 40 days and 40 nights taunting and taunting and taunting. And David's amazed that, that his people, they've heard all the stories about God's uh, miraculous del- uh, deliverance and miraculous victories. He's amazed that nobody is rising to the challenge. He can't believe this Philistine has the audacity to challenge God and God's people. He can't believe everybody's scared of this guy. And so we pick up in chapter 17, verse 24, all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, Goliath, they fled from him. They were afraid. And the men of Israel said, have you seen the man who's come up? Surely he's come up to defy Israel, and the king will enrich the one who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David says, what's going to happen for the man that kills this guy? You're going to get to... Be free and, and, and not pay taxes, and, 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 and you're going you're gonna to marry the king's daughter? That sounds pretty good. But then he says, what's going to be done for the man that, that kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? Reproach is another word for shame. See, the thing that gets David most is that he looks around, and he and his people are getting punked by this bully. And they are, are so ashamed that they can't even look at each other in the, anymore. They've brought shame not only on themselves, but they're bringing shame on the name of God. Shame is a powerful force. And, and you know, guys, we spent our lives getting punked by sin. You spent your life getting punked by sin. Sin is like that bully in the lunchroom that comes along and says, just come on, just do the same thing everybody else is doing. It's going to work this time, I promise. And we do it, and we get so sickened by it, we get so twisted by it, we get so disturbed by it, that we can't even look each other in the eye anymore. We can't even look God in the eye anymore. Even though Psalm 34 says, those who look to him are radiant, their faces will never be put to shame. We, we can't even believe it, because we believe the bill of goods that sin has taught us Instead, the lies that sin has taught us instead, and we've gotten punked by sin the same way these guys are getting punked by Goliath, and David comes along and says, who's going to remove this reproach? That is the question. Who is going to take away your shame? Who's going to take away the shame, the reproach from God's people? 
Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him the same way. This is what's going to happen to the one who kills him. You're free to try. Skip down to verse 32. David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with the Philistines. So Saul has heard. David's been talking big. Saul brings him in and says, how are you going to fight this guy? Verse 33, Saul says, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. You're just a youth. He's been a man of war since he was your age. And David said, your servant, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. That's where the pasture comes in. All, all those years of being forgotten about. This is where they pay off. When there came a lion or a bear to took a, li- a lamb from the flock, I went after him. I struck him. I delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion, from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and may the Lord be with you. We know what happens next. Probably Saul puts his own armor on David. David's walking around, I can't move in this stuff. And he just takes his familiar, unconventional weapons that he's gotten used to using out in the pasture. He takes his stick, his staff, he takes his, his, uh, his uh, sling, and he picks five smooth stones. Verse 41, the Philistine moves forward and came near David with a shield bearer in front of him. And the Philistine looked and saw David. He's, he's insulted, he's disdained. He said, He said, this guy's a youth and he's ruddy and handsome. And the Philistine said, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks and stones? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air, to the beasts of the field. Man, you gotta gotta give Goliath some credit. He knows how to talk smack. Can you imagine being this this young guy, this nine-foot guy saying this stuff to you? David said, you come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down. I will cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air, to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. He says, I'm going to, this is going to be a witness to the whole world, and it's going to be a witness to these scared Israelites that there is a God, and he does not deliver with sword and shield. Man, all the guys in the camp are saying, man, that was a great speech. Really going to miss David. He was really, <laughs> it was really a great guy. It was, it was so nice knowing him. And so what happens? So it's the great story, right? He goes out and he, and he starts swinging his, 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 uh, his sling and, and he lets loose that stone and it hits Goliath between the eyes and Goliath falls down and David in that moment of just beauty, right? He, co- he goes, he doesn't have a sword. He goes and he pulls out Goliath's sword from Goliath's sheath and he hacks Goliath's head off and he picks it up and when all the Philistines saw Goliath's head dangling from David's hand, they run. And then what do the Israelites do? Quaking in their boots, what did they start doing? They were told that they get up, they start running, and they start hacking down Philistines left and right. Suddenly, someone has won a victory on their behalf. Their representative did for them what they could not do for themselves. And because he did for them what they could not do for themselves, he represented them when they did not resemble him. Now they start to resemble him, and they run and they have courage, and the Philistines flee. It's an amazing story. Man, it gets me pumped to just to, just to hear that, to read that. But you know what the point of the story isn't? 
The point of the story is not, go be a David, whatever giant you have. You can defeat that giant if you just believe hard enough. It's not the point of the story. This isn't a Disney movie. The point of the story is not that you're David. You know who you and me are in the story? Anybody want to take a guess who you and me are in the story? We're the Israelites that were quaking in our boots, totally powerless to to, to rescue ourselves. The point of the story is there is a greater David who has come and who has faced a greater Goliath, the force of shame and death and sin. And that greater David has defeated that greater Goliath on your behalf. He rescued you when you could not rescue yourself. We're like the scared Israelites. We got saved, we got rescued, and we didn't even lift a finger to contribute We reap the benefits of someone else's victory. Man, death, sin, fear, shame, all of that stuff stems from our alienation from God, and it's been punking you and me our whole lives. Dominating us. But there's this unlikely hero. Man, everybody laughed at Jesus all the way to the cross. Satan thought he had won. They're spitting on him. They're pulling out his beard. They're, 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 they're beating him. Nail him to a cross naked, humiliated. Who's going to take away our shame? The one who, sh- who bore our shame on our behalf. Who faces our giant, the real giant? Jesus does with unconventional weapons of cross, resurrection, unconditional love. After Jesus dies on the cross and he rose from the grave, picking up where Sonda left off in John chapter 20. Verse 19, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors were locked where the disciples were. They were afraid, just like the Israelites were. And and Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, his wounds, and they were glad. They rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. What he was doing was saying, Man, I'm going to kick down these doors, and I'm breathing on you and giving you the Holy Spirit. You run out of these doors and run through this earth doing just what the Israelites did after David defeated Goliath, except you're not going to go overcome the world through Slicing and dicing people, you're going to go overcome the world through the word of your testimony that Christ is king. Christ has risen. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we get to share in the greatest victory ever won. He represented you when you did not resemble him so that you would come to resemble him. Jesus is better than David. And we're wrapping up. Jesus is better than David. He's a better shepherd. And David was a great shepherd. He, you could trust him with your flock. But Jesus is a better shepherd. Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. In John 10, he goes on to say in John 10, 10, there's an enemy, there's a thief that comes to steal, kill, and destroy from you. And he's been doing it too long. He says, but I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly. He's a better warrior. Jesus is a better warrior. Isaiah 52 says that God has bared his holy arm and showed his strength. And nobody imagined that when God bared his holy arm, it would be on a cross where he was nailed and where he gave his life for us. He's a better king, not a king that comes and lords it over us, but a king who takes a towel and a basin in his hand and washes our feet and dies on a cross, enthroned on a cross, but who death could not hold and he rises again. He's got a better heart. You know, the Lord's eyes look to and fro, looking for a heart that's completely his, and it wasn't David. 
David was a man after God's own heart, but you know what? David wandered from God. He, he failed big time. Adultery, murder, just to name a few. God looked this earth over for a man or a woman whose heart was completely his, and God's word says there was none righteous, not even one. So God came to us himself, and Jesus is the better David with a better heart. Jesus has a heart it's totally God's. So what about the lesser giants we face? Once we see that the David story is fulfilled in the gospel of, of Jesus dying and rising and Jesus taking his seat as the, the true king of the universe, once we see that, then we can apply to ourselves. It goes David to Jesus and then to us. How do we overcome the lesser giants in our lives? Guys, if, if, if Jesus could de- destroy the Goliath of sin and death and shame, then there's no sin, there's no lie in your heart that he cannot also overcome. So what did the Israelites do when David killed Goliath? They picked up their swords and they ran with all their might. They went from playing defense and they started playing offense. They realized they were sharers in the victory. David represented him. Therefore, what was true of of him became true of them. 20 plus years ago, I walked in the back door of a little sanctuary, much smaller than this one, broke down a mess, had blown up my life, and a small group of people gathered around me and told me that Jesus was bigger than what I had done, that Jesus was better than what I had done, that what I was walking through right then was a chapter, and that chapter had a beginning, and that chapter had an ending, and there was a whole book that came after that chapter, and this did not have to define my life, and I was foolish enough that by the grace of God, I believed that. And I became a sharer in the victory that Jesus won on my behalf. behalf. Those people were witnesses to me that Jesus is alive, that Jesus is a king. You're called to be that kind of witness. You know what? I've watched some amazing Olympic victories. But, but there's never been a moment where the, the, spirit, where the spirit of Michael Johnson or Michael Phelps jumped off the TV and jumped on me. And I went and, and started swimming across the city pool or running 400-meter dashes. Wasn't a moment where the spirit of a figure skater jumped off the screen and onto me and I started doing triple axles all over the place. And I pray that never happens. But those were incredible victories, but there's something different about Jesus' victory. Romans 8 11 says, it says that <laughs> this is what's true of those who've trusted Jesus. He says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, he gives life to your mortal body. Jesus didn't just win a victory for us and say, hey, now you guys take it from here. Jesus isn't just a great example for us. Jesus has given you, if you know him, if you trust him, if you will trust him, he will give you his very own spirit to do in you what you and I could never do for ourselves. So what do we do when that Goliath of, that smaller Goliath of cancer or bitterness or offense or loneliness, those feel like pretty big Goliaths, don't they? Loneliness, when those Goliaths come and taunt us, the question is, where will you turn? in the face of that Goliath. Where will you place your trust? Where will you place your confidence? Will you preach the gospel to yourself? 
Will you preach the gospel to your giant? That's exactly what David did. He preached the gospel to his giant. He said, there is a God who is king. That's what your giant needs to hear. That's what your heart needs to hear. You know how often I just, I want to throw in the towel. I want to give up. I think, what's the point? And I got to preach the gospel to myself. I have to have people in my lives that are reminding me of the gospel. And you need that too. What is the gospel? The gospel is Jesus is Lord. And no Goliath can compare to him. Jesus is better. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, we can share in the greatest victory there's ever been. As the band comes up, I want to share one more great Olympic moment. I think we have a picture of it on the screen up there. Maybe you, you recognize the name Derek Redmond. He was a shoe-in in 1992 Barcelona to, to at least medal, probably gold. But halfway through his race, he tore his hamstring. He could have just laid down and said, call in the medics, call in the, you know, the ambulance. But what he does, stay, stay on that picture for a minute, what he does is he limps. And this man comes running up behind him. You may not know this, you may know this, but that man running up behind him is his father. Derek's father could not be contained in the stands. He would not watch from a distance. They could not keep that man off the track even though they tried. He runs to his son. Show us what happens next. He embraces his son. And they walk to that finish line together. You may, you may have just blown out your hamstring. You may have blown up your life. And your father is not watching from a cozy distance, shaking his head. There's nothing that can keep your father away from you. God loved you so much that he gave. He came to you himself in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And he did for you, amen. He did for you and me what we could not do for ourselves. Your, your, you know, your, your life right now may not be a picture of this Davidic victory. It's okay because there's a better David than you anyway. Your life may look a lot more like limping across the finish line, but your father is with you. So while I got you here, guys, I want to give you an opportunity. I want you to, to really ask yourself the question, not am I a good person? Do I do the right things? Do I go to Sunday school? That's not the question we're asking right now. I want you to ask yourself the question, do I know Jesus Christ? Does he know me? Have I placed my confidence in him or, or have I built my life on something else? 